Welcome to a special bonus episode of the EIS Navigator. I'm your host, Brian Moretta. When we started the podcast, we received a lot of positive feedback. We also had a couple of requests to discuss EIS and VCTs in a more introductory way. In the second of our bonus episodes, we discussed the schemes from the perspective of companies that are looking to raise money. To help us, we have Simon Thorne from Accelerus, who've been helping companies raise money for a couple of decades. If you want to hear about the schemes from an investor's perspective, then check out our previous bonus episode with Mark Brownridge from the EIS Association. But without any further ado, enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. Today on this special bonus episode, we are joined by Simon Thorne, who is Managing Director at Accelerus. Welcome, Simon. Hi, Brian. Thanks for having me on. Our pleasure. This is a special bonus episode where we're going to be focusing on the EIS and VCT schemes from the perspective of companies looking for finance. And I thought in that context, it would be useful for you to perhaps spend a moment on who you are and your background and what Accelerus does, because I think that would be relevant for listeners. Sure. Yeah. To start with, um, we've actually been around for 20 years this year which is a bit of a milestone for us. Um, bit of a strange year in which to celebrate that. Um, but what Accelerus specialises in is advising and supporting early and growth stage technology-based companies. Uh, and as part of that, um, our expertise is in accessing the right capital at the right time to allow those companies to execute their growth plans. We've been regulated by the FCA throughout our lifetime um, not just as an appointed representative, but actually um, authorised and regulated in our own right, which we think think gives us a bit of a badge of honour in terms of credibility um, and the way that we go about doing our business. So what, what we do specifically uh, in terms of the investor side of things is providing them with the choice, ability and flexibility to build their own portfolios in early stage venture capital companies. We do that to allow investors uh, a different way of, of building portfolios than the traditional fund manager. So for private investors, it's deal by deal, direct investment uh, into what we like to categorize as high growth, game changing companies with global ambitions. And typically we carry out four to six transactions per year. Although you focus on the area, I think you see a wider variety of companies that are coming to you. Is that fair? Yeah, no, it is fair. Um, typically, we see 250 to 300 opportunities per year. It's only a very small percentage of those that we'll actually take on. We'll review a lot of them. We'll review a lot of them in detail, but we only take on a select few every year. And a typical transaction size for us would be raising a million to, say, three million pounds uh, we can do less for the right opportunities and um, we've done considerably more uh, in the recent past as well okay so that sets uh, a bit of background of where you're sort of starting from for the companies or or founders who are sort of new to these schemes i thought it might be helpful to briefly summarize about what these schemes are and, and why they exist yeah, well, they were actually introduced by the, the UK government in 1994 um, with the aim of helping young businesses to attract investment to allow them to reach their potential. In return for the government providing generous tax incentives for investors, um, the government can also um, see an increase in, in their other tax revenues 
such as employment taxes and hopefully corporation tax receipts, by enabling companies to grow faster and creating more jobs and more profitable companies. Um, so that, that was the, the initial inception of um, VIS, going back 26 years now. The schemes themselves have actually been expanded uh, quite significantly, probably over the last, I'd say, decade. Whereas when, when originally set up, EIS was purely associated with, with startups or very early stage companies. Um, from recollection, I think companies had to have less than 50 employees at one time. Whereas nowadays, um, the EIS and, and certainly VCT schemes are open to, to larger companies at later stage in their developments than, than was traditionally associated. Yeah, so we've got three schemes now, which is uh, the Enterprise Investment Scheme, the Seed Enterprise Investment Scheme, and Venture Capital Trusts. So it might be worth briefly summarising what these actually are. Yes, no problem. So Seed EIS is the, the most recent of the three schemes, um, which was added by HMRC a few years ago. And that's associated with pure startups or very early stage businesses. Um, and they m must be two years um, or less in terms of their age um, or from when they started trading. So that was set up by HMRC to encourage investment into um, the very early stage in a company's life cycle. A business can only raise 150K of SAS funding in its, in its lifetime and individual investors are only able to invest um, £100,000 per annum into SEIS eligible companies or funds. And the, the reason that it was devised by HMRC is, I mentioned in my previous answer that the EIS scheme uh, itself has been expanded over the last decade, and that caused um, the, the very early stage companies to perhaps suffer a lack of of traction when trying to secure their initial capital to get off the ground. Um, so the SEIS was devised and that provides investors with even greater um, tax release than the EIS scheme. The one of most note being a 50% income tax reduction um, on the value of um, capital invested into SEIS for eligible investors. So that's for CDIS and, and that leads into the EIS scheme, which as I say, has been around for, for over 25 years now. And that's aimed at the stage following uh, a company's inception or perhaps where they've introduced uh, an amount of capital to allow them to get an idea off the ground, um, hopefully develop some early traction or create some early IP. And a company can typically raise um, 20 million of EIS over its lifetime, um, which was, again, recently expanded by, by the government as there used to be a cap of, of 10 million uh, therefore, so in order to qualify for the twenty million pound limit, uh, a company must be classified as knowledge intensive. Um, so a lot of the technology-based companies would fall into that um, because there's um, a lot of expertise and uh, an IP uh, around those those type of companies. And there's a very precise definition of what a knowledge intensive company actually is. I think there is. Um, and I don't have it in front of me, Brian. So <laughs> being um, a pretty tight definition, I mean, you can find a lot of information on the HMRC website itself, which is, is very detailed. 
technically as well. So it's very simple to find out if you're likely to qualify as a as a knowledge intensive company or not. I think I think the restrictions are minimum numbers, minimum amounts spent on developing new products, or minimum numbers of staff of a certain qualification or, in theory, intellectual capacity. And those are the two areas that the sort of definition focuses on. Indeed, yeah, and there are a lot a lot of um, service providers or or tax accountants as well who can who can help companies navigate around that if they need some additional expertise. Okay. And we've got VCTs as well, which is kind of like ES, but it's a fund in essence, I think. With it's, a, it's, a, it's a listed vehicle. So um, they can all be funds. So SCIS and DIS can be can be funds or, or individuals can invest directly into companies um, under either of, of those two schemes. Um, whereas, as, as I say, uh, a VCT is a listed vehicle, um, typically listed on the AIM stock market, and I suppose is more generally associated with with growth stage companies, um, where some of the risk has been has been taken away, as VCTs generally look to invest slightly later than than most EIS monies, I'd say, as they look for um, for income in order to pay out dividends to the investors into a VCT, uh, and those dividends are tax free. Uh, which is one of the main attractions of a of a VCT to an investor. And it's interesting, I think, that in terms of, of what companies qualify, ES and VCT have the same rules, but the way they work in practice is different. Yes. And often um, you'll find investors um, who, who invest in this space over the course of, of a typical year would invest perhaps across all three. I think... SEIS probably gets a little bit less attention, um, despite the, the very generous tax breaks. But it is a lot more um, higher risk than, than EIS and VCT, and VCT being the lower risk. Yeah. So if a company was thinking about raising money under one of these schemes, the first thing, I suppose, is to think about, are they actually eligible? And how would they go about finding if they're eligible for uh, an investor to get these tax release? Sure. So uh, I mentioned earlier the HMRC website, which is a good first point of call in terms of allowing a, a company to take an initial view as to whether the trade that they are either planning um, or undertaking at the moment, whether that trade actually qualifies. Um, then there's limits on employees and gross assets, um, as well as other matters as well. Um, so the HMRC website is is a good first point of call for that. The rules around EIS eligibility have got um, significantly more complicated over recent years. Um, so whereas most early stage companies with a UK base undertaking some kind of new technology to be very broad um, would typically qualify, and that used to be very simple to find out and um, and and get comfort on. Nowadays, um, I think with some of the nuances in the rules, you perhaps do need some expertise in navigating that just to make sure that that you do qualify. And as I mentioned earlier, um, either ourselves or um, tax accountants, specialist uh, EIS providers, and um, there's a number of people that can that can help companies to to ascertain their eligibility. Yeah, I think the the big challenge at the moment is the risk to capital condition, which came in a couple of years ago. 
And up until then, the HHRC's focus had been primarily on a list of excluded activities, coal mining, lending, renewable energy or energy generation was perhaps the most recent addition to that. And then they introduced this risk to capital condition, which I think has changed things quite substantially. It has, and and I can completely understand why HMRC, um, or one of the reasons why HMRC brought that um, that risk to capital rule in. Um, I mean, they um, believe that EIS was being used. I, I hate, I don't want to say the word exploited um, because it it was all within the rules um, previously that schemes are being set up um, with very minimal risk in order to utilize EIS for, for investors and, and generate a return in extremely safe um, and low risk manners, which whilst completely within the rules, I think was not the true reason why EIS was invented uh, and, and set up and developed originally. So I, I, as I say, I completely understand why HMRC brought that in. It does create more complexity, um, but um, I think that complexity, although takes further expertise um, to to navigate, uh, I'm a strong believer in 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 what EIS was originally set up to to do, which is to help technology um, based or or young companies, innovative companies, to access the capital that they need uh, in order to grow, because it's it's very difficult to raise that capital, and it's very risky. Absolutely. And I think that's something that's probably a rough guide for companies to think about in the first place in that if investors can lose all the capital, then Mm. you might be eligible. If you've got anything that sort of says investors can't lose all their capital, then they won't be eligible. And that's kind of a a first approximation um, to sort of determine eligible. So having determined whether or not you're eligible for SEIS or EIS or VCT funding, if a company comes to you, what's the various options they might have for where to go to get the money? And maybe we can chat through about how some of these work and the advantages or disadvantages of them. So, I mean, as an advisory um, house, which which we are, um, we're, when we're approached by companies to help them, then they're coming to us as, as an advisor. Now, clearly, companies seeking to raise capital aren't necessitated to use a, a external advisors and many choose to approach investors directly. Um, there's no right or wrong with either approach and it depends up, upon preference of management teams. I think one of the things that we do bring to the table is taking that strain uh, and time burden off management teams to allow them to be focusing as much as they can on running and growing their businesses. Um, because fundraising is incredibly time-consuming, um, and it can be a full-time job for a period for for management teams. And once once a company has decided whether it wishes to use an advisor um, or approach the investment market um, directly themselves, then then again, there's um, you set off into a decision tree of um, different avenues, of which some may be more appropriate, dependent on on each individual company and what sector they're in, what stage they're at, um, what their business model is, how risky it is. Um, So that spans from um, friends and family type rounds. And usually that would be done um, for, I'd say, well, the first round, the seed capital. And that would typically be a small amount to to set a company up 
uh, refine its business plan, maybe get a bit of traction and perhaps provide the company with that initial six to 12 months um, maximum in, in order to perhaps fully investigate their, their, their business a bit more before approaching true kind of external investors. Yeah, I think I think the friend and family one could be a brave decision in some ways because if it goes wrong, there's an awkward Christmas dinner or family birthday party coming somewhere in Indeed. the future. Yeah, I think full transparency and disclosure is extremely important uh, for all investors, but particularly where there's um, yeah. perhaps personal connections um, yeah. because that, that could lead to, to fallouts in the future perhaps. Yeah, I think that's the other thing to bear in mind for people starting a company is that in some ways... I wouldn't use the phrase dumb money, which is probably unfair, but it's probably not sophisticated money and mm. it's less likely to come with the support or advice perhaps that you might be able to get through some other routes. Correct. Yeah. And it's probably more those friends and, and, and family members putting their trust in you because they believe that, um, that your business idea um, has got legs and they believe that you can, you can go on to, to raise the further investment you need and make a success of it. So beyond friend and families, usually, well, not usually, but we're going to talk about this kind of sequential, and I think it's tempting to say everyone goes through every stage, and this isn't true. There's sort of all sorts of options, and most people will do some, but no one will do all of them. So the next one up in the hierarchy would be what, do you think? In terms of hierarchy and next steps, it would either be a fund, say an EIS fund, or perhaps try to raise some some further capital from um, private investors, um, high net worth individuals who are perhaps looking for um, for direct investments. So a, a company could go either way. In terms of um, high net worth investors, again, um, there's a the decision tree at, at that point. You you could approach um, investors directly um, if you have introductions to them, or if you know, um, or if you know them yourselves or if you know angel groups all investors have different preferences in in terms of how they like to approach their eis investing so underneath angel groups um, obviously high net worth investors directly eis funds the investors in, in in the investors or members into each of those categories are all essentially high net worth or sophisticated investors it's, there's just different approaches as to how they want to invest their their cash and have that managed or or manage it themselves. There's different types of funds who focus on different stages. Some focus on the early stage, some focus on later stage growth capital. So it it all depends on on the company and what's right for them at the time in terms of who who they approach and and when and at what stage of their development. It's very tempting for a company to to sort of say, okay, I need to raise money and just go out there and try and contact everybody they can. But that's both inefficient for the company and also for the people on the funding side where you're going to be contacting a lot of people who isn't really relevant for them and you're kind of wasting your time and the investor's time as well. Indeed, yeah. And may perhaps um, show a little bit of um, inexperience or, or, or lack of focus, um, if I can say that. Um, if, if, I guess, a, a gung-ho approach is taken that um, just to approach as many different um, avenues and funds 
and groups as, as possible without doing any research into um, who actually might be um, an appropriate party to approach and then tailoring your, your approach to that party correctly to actually show that you, you've understood what it is that that, that investor or fund manager um, is actually looking for um, and, wh- and whether they're right for you as well. It's a very idiosyncratic industry, I think, and everybody's got that their own approach. And I think even funds are like this, but the, the angel side even more so, where it's often an individual or even within syndicates, there's one or two individuals who are really driving it. And it's their individual preferences that really determine what sort of things they're interested in and what approach they take to things coming through the door. Definitely, yeah. And it's... It's still the case that um, I think a, a warm introduction can help massively. I think that's been the case for for as long as I've been um, working in this industry, and I can't see that changing anytime soon. As you mentioned um, just recently, Brian, um, these funds or investment groups see hundreds and hundreds of, of opportunities each year, um, and they're perhaps making, um, say, eight to ten investments per annum. So you've really got to tailor who you approach and tailor your message to them for it to be um, to be given uh, due consideration, I'd say. Yeah, yeah. I, certainly if you can bring along something that says, I've looked at what you do and this is why I fit what you do, you're going to be looked at a lot more seriously than just like off if you send across a standard pitch deck and say, hey, we're this great company. Yeah, um, because – and you'd be surprised um, – that well, you probably wouldn't be surprised, I should say. Um, <laughs> every um, founder or, or CEO um, is convinced uh, with their business, and, and so they should be. Uh, if they're not, they shouldn't be seeking to raise capital. But fund managers and advisors see that every day. So you really need to articulate why you're different. For I, I think for for positive results, and I think from. From the company's perspective as well, it's vitally important to have the right investors on board at the right time. Again, different investor types, different funds have different outlooks on investing and EIS investing. Most listeners will be aware that um, the the holding period for EIS investments is a minimum of three years. Um, Some investors um, like to look to to get out um, as soon as they realistically can um, once that three years is up, whereas others are more patient capital um, and look to stay in for for the longer term and build towards perhaps a more substantial exit, perhaps less focused on on the short-term tax um, reliefs um, than, than others. And if you're looking to build a business, perhaps a technology business, which is more, um, more longer term, and that could be seven to 10 years, then you don't want the wrong investor in it at the start because they're going to be focusing and, and looking to maneuver towards some type of exit in the first half of perhaps your your life cycle, which doesn't really lend itself to to building a business and um, the way that longer term capital can allow. Yeah. Yeah. And the long term thing's an interesting aspect in personality terms as well, because as some people have commented, a venture capital investment can last longer than a marriage. If you've got someone who you feel you can't get on with and you're stuck with them in some sense for the next seven or eight years, then yeah. that could actually be very difficult. Definitely, yeah. Um, and just to build on your analogy, I've been married for five years now um, and I think we've got uh, one investment in our portfolio which is 12 years old 
So, um, so there's the proof um, <laughs> for, for you there. But no, absolutely. Um, you don't have to be best friends with with investors and, and, and shareholders, but you do need to um, be working towards the same goal um, and have the same aspirations. Not not exactly, but you both need to kind of agree, agree the direction of travel and what the end game may look like. Um, otherwise, you'll you'll face an uphill battle trying to to do things that you want to do, but perhaps um, your shareholders or or your majority shareholder um, with most most say or most clout um, doesn't want to do. And that will just lead to businesses being stifled and development taking significantly longer than it should and often doesn't result in, in favourable outcomes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think the other area where investors vary widely is in terms of the sort of support they are either able or willing to give to the investee company, because that can make the difference between success and failure, I think, for some companies. True, very true. Yeah. And some some investors, funds, uh, advisors, all parties which which get involved in the investment side of things um, have different outlooks and approaches to that. Some like to be more hands-on than others. I think an important point to perhaps emphasize is that when investing in in these companies, you've got to be backing management teams and, and boards. Um, so you shouldn't look to perhaps try to run the business or, or tell the teams what, what they should be doing. Um, otherwise, that perhaps suggests that you've backed the wrong company or you've got the wrong management team in place. So so why did you back that, that company? But at, at, from a, the company's perspective, you should certainly be looking for, for access to their networks because the vast majority are very well networked, asking for help and support or, or bouncing ideas off them as much as is appropriate for, for your company. Um, and I, I mean, one thing I would say is don't don't be afraid to to just bounce ideas off or, or ask people what their opinion is um, because they may be able to help or they may they may know people who, who could help or, or, or get involved in a particular area. Yeah. So if someone's looking at an investor before the point of investment thinking, is this investor a good fit in terms of what sort of advice or support can give? What can the company actually do to sort of find that out? They could ask for examples. I think the company should spend an amount of time with with investors and or, or fund managers prior to um, deciding that they're going to go down that route and, and accept investment from that party. So make sure that you're comfortable with the people that um, that you're going to be working with because it's going to be for several years. You could do some research on other companies within particular investors' portfolios, perhaps um, ask to speak to one or two of their um, CEOs or ask other other advisory parties in, in the marketplace if, if and what they, they know about particular funds. So you, you could ask your advisors, you could ask your lawyers, you could ask your your accountants, just gauge some general feedback uh, in terms of what, what people's thoughts are. And that should all help to um, make the decision more more comfortable. One area that, in terms of fashion, seems to have come and gone a little bit is crowdfunding. So how do you see crowdfunding fitting into the picture for companies as an option? I think it's definitely an option um, for the right companies. It's been around for, for quite a while now, and I think it considers to be sorry, it continues to be um, 
somewhat of a of a marmite option. Um, you either love it or you hate it. And I think there's there's still yet to be the the huge fallout um, that was predicted from the inception of of crowdfunding. But for businesses who are consumer facing, it could be great um, as a means of not just accessing finance, but providing uh, additional PR or even access to additional customers. So again, uh, it completely depends upon the company. For some companies, it should be an absolute no, don't go anywhere near it because it's not going to be right for you. Such Um, as? I would say generally longer term uh, investments, um, perhaps in technology-based, whether that's healthcare, biotech, um, those type of investments which are generally pre-revenue and pre-revenue for a number of years um, before they make a breakthrough. Just because of the the breadth of underlying shareholders that, that you're likely to secure with a crowdfunding campaign. So although most tend to be governed by a nominee structure, if you've got a few hundred kind of underlying investors within that, it it doesn't take many of them to start um, kicking up a fuss or, or asking why things are taking so long or when's the next sale going to be be created. And I think that, that that's one of the downfalls of, of crowdfunding in that it has opened up um, the early stage and AIS market to anybody in, in terms of allowing them to to invest in uh, in companies. That has good and bad um, connotations. Um, the good is it, it allows people to, to access it. Um, and why shouldn't they be allowed? Um, the bad is not everybody who, who chooses to invest in that way is um, perhaps as, as aware or educated as they need to be um, when investing in, in these type of companies because it is high risk. Um, Absolutely, yeah. You can mitigate those risks and that's what companies should be doing, but but you can't get away from the fact that it is risky. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other thing that I've heard is that sometimes, or even often, the support that you're going to get from investors will be weak because they are less sophisticated. They don't necessarily either have knowledge of networks or whatever that can support you in the way perhaps a business angel could. I think the type of investor who would invest through a, a crowdfunding platform um, probably wouldn't have that that expertise or or network in order to help. Otherwise, they'd, they'd probably be uh, an investor in in their own right, um, member of a group, or um, or known as a uh, as a knowledgeable or particularly active angel or, or investor in this space, rather than than going through a, a crowdfunding site. So what should a company do if they look at this and then realize actually they don't qualify for EIS or SES or VCG funding? Do they have any particular options then? Most of the earlier stage companies within within the UK would qualify. For those that don't, um, they are perhaps unfairly prejudiced in that early stage investing is pretty much in the UK goes hand in hand with being EIS eligible. So if you don't have that um, eligibility, then it's going to significantly impact the breadth of investors that, that you're able to approach, regardless of of the merits of, of your business and your aspirations, which which can which, which is a shame. Absolutely. N- nevertheless, um, th- there are options. Some of um, the wealthier um, high net worth or, or individual investors will invest in businesses 
irrespective of a VIS if that business is right. And indeed, that should be the fundamental question that an investor asks himself before investing into a business. Is this a business that, that I would back? Um, the tax relief should always be um, an incentive and, and a bonus on top of that. Otherwise, you are just investing into a business for the tax reliefs, hoping that it can generate a return. So you've got to invest into, into sound businesses. So there are, there are still individual investors who will invest um, into non-EIS qualifying businesses. Um, there's family offices, which are, are getting more and more, I think, visible um, and active in this area. They've traditionally been kind of very, very under the radar, um, very much away from the venture end of the, of the investing spectrum. But that appears to be changing now. Um, and they're becoming more, more visible and, and more wanting to be, um, to be found and um, to be approached by a select number of parties to allow them to, to have a proportion of their wealth um, within venture. Because of their wealth, the check sizes that they can write, they, they would typically be non-EIS. So that's a growing area. And there's also um, various um, VC funds um, who, who are non-EIS, whether they're specialist funds focusing on a particular area, or also there's very successful government, um, government-backed regional funds as well. Um, Northern Powerhouse been, and that sort of thing. Northern Powerhouse, Midlands Engine, um, those type of funds, which have been around for a long time in various different guises again, ma- mandated by, by government funds to help regional businesses to, to grow and to create jobs. Um, so they're, they're always worth approaching as well because they're, they're pretty active and make a lot of investments. Yeah, so I know there's not many, but there's a few EIS fund managers, for example, have access to non-EIS funds. Some cases, it's some of these uh, regional funds that you mentioned. I know a couple of people who have overseas investors who couldn't get the EIS tax breaks either. So there's only a small number of EIS managers, I think, that can do that, but it's worth checking those out as well. It is, yes. And those those parties that, that are able to offer both are definitely worth checking out. And if it's not something that, that they could help with, again, I think, I think in, in this industry, most people are able to and, and indeed um, like to pass on opportunities to to others if it's not something that they can help with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, th- I think the final point I perhaps wanted to touch on was for companies coming into this market, I, particularly those who've never raised money before, I think there are some compliance aspects which they need to perhaps be aware of and maybe start thinking about uh, before they get tripped up. So maybe it's worth mentioning a couple of those just so that everyone's on a safe footing. Indeed, yeah. And again, that, that varies dependent on the fundraising route that, that a company goes down. Advisors can help to, to navigate that. You've got your retail investors, um, and that would be, I guess, more associated with going down the, the crowdfunding approach. On the other side, there's, there's the long-established sophisticated investor or, or self-certified high net worth investor route, which narrows your your available um, audience but does provide you access to um, to those who who are experienced in in this and, and know what they're doing um, in, in in terms of this stage of investment so a company does need to to be careful 
in terms of how it promotes, who it promotes to, and the nature of that approach as well. If you basically approach the wrong person in the wrong way, you can end up in trouble. Absolutely. Yeah. And documentation is is critical there. I think the FCA like to use a phrase, uh, clear, fair and not misleading. So companies should prepare investor documentation with that at the forefront of their mind. Okay. So thank you very much, Simon. If people wanted to know any more, where should they go? Um, there's a plethora of information um, in terms of EIS itself um, available on on the web, um, start at HMRC website um, in terms of uh, EIS eligibility, both for companies and, and for individual investors. The EIS Association is also a, a great place to, to start as well. Um, and they could provide many introductions to relevant funds, advisors, investors, tax specialists. Um, so again, they, as, as the industry body, they're, they're very effective in, in helping companies to, to navigate this area. And then if companies think that, that we may be able to help them, by all means, visit our website, um, Accelerist.com, for further details. Great. And we'll put links to the HMRC websites in the show notes. Um, so if people uh, want a quick link, they can, they can find it there. Otherwise, thank you very much, Simon. Uh, we really appreciate you coming on the podcast today. Likewise. Pleasure speaking with you, Brian. We hope you enjoyed both of our bonus episodes, giving you a more introductory view on EIS and tax advantage schemes. You can find the full show notes with links at harmonandco.com forward slash podcast. If you want for more information or have suggestions for future bonus episodes, then please contact us at inquiries at harmonandco.com. If you liked what you heard, then please give us a review with lots of stars at iTunes. You can also subscribe on all good podcast players and services. Otherwise, thank you very much for listening and hope to speak to you soon.